you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today with Mark Hirschberg, author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation. And before we dig in, let me properly introduce you to Mark. So Mark was educated at MIT and has spent his career launching and fixing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. He's developed new software languages, online marketplaces, new authentication systems, and tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. I might have to try to squeeze something in around that, Mark, to understand, wow, what have you been up to? Um, But Mark also helped create the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he's taught for 20 years. Mark also serves on the boards of nonprofits Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corals. He's also so very multifaceted, Mark, and who who you are. He was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York City, where he is known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, uh, as well as his diverse cufflink collection. So... I'm really excited to dig in, Mark, with you and hear more about the book and what brought you to this. And I'd like to start there just to hear a little bit more about what brought you to this work. You know, how did you go from a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, a master's in electrical engineering and computer science? You know, you have 14 patents to leading the career success accelerator and then writing this book, writing this book. What what brought you on this journey? It certainly sounds like it's completely black and white, but in fact, they are very much related. When I graduated from MIT, I began my career as a software engineer. And early on, I realized I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. In order to be successful as a CTO, it wasn't just about being a great engineer. I also needed to have these other skills, leadership, communication, team building, negotiating, but no one ever taught me these skills. They're not in a standard college curriculum. So I had to develop the skills in myself. And as I was doing so, I realized these skills are not just for executives, they are for everyone at the company. So I began to develop them in my team. Now, as I was doing this, MIT and their surveys of companies who come and hire our alumni, they got feedback saying these are the skills companies want to see leadership communication team building they want to see these skills not just in our students not just in college students but in everyone universally these are the skills they want but they can't find so mit's response was to create a program to instill these skills into our students and when i heard about i reached out i said you know i've been working on developing programs internally can i be of any help can i share materials They said, yes, please, please come share what you have. 
I helped them design the course. And then the person who was starting off the program said, you know, we've got all these great professors, obviously top world-class researchers in these in these topics, but you bring a different perspective as a practitioner. Can you help us teach the class? And I've been very fortunate that for the past 20 or so years, along with many other people, I've been able to teach the students at MIT. And that put me on this parallel path. I'm still a CTO, I still build tech companies, but I've had a parallel career teaching at MIT and elsewhere, and now the book and the speaking that go with it. Oh, I love that. And I want to come back to that because um, so often people want to make us one note and think that we need to follow one path. And I love the fact that you are, you know, really following two different interests that you have. So really having this career as somebody in technology and being a CTO, but also honoring the side where you really have a deep interest in developing some expertise and really contributing and helping people along this path of like, well, how do you go? How do you do what I just did? And was like wondering how you do. So how have you, how have you balanced those two different things? Because so often, even to myself, people, I kind of have a dual path too. And people often push back on that. You got to focus, Kathy. And, and I find that I can get a little frustrated by that, that people really want to often put us in a box. With all advice, you have to recognize there's a point to the advice, but then you have to decide what's right for you. For example, we tell most people, and I would say this too, you should go to college. A college education greatly increases your chances for success. I think that is very good advice. Well, we can think of people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Will Smith, Michael J. Fox, all of whom declined to go to college or dropped out very quickly and had wildly successful careers. They made the right choice not going to college. But still, knowing nothing else about you, I would say, you know, college is probably going to increase your chances for success. So when we hear advice like that, the advice is generally well-founded, but then we have to ask for me, my unique set of skills, what I have, my resources, where I am trying to go, should I choose a different path, even if it's not the most likely to succeed and only you can decide what's right for you? Now, certainly doing this dual path, there are some costs I've taken on. For example, my brand, me as Mark Hirschberg, there are people who say, oh, you're the technologist, you're the CTO, that cybersecurity expert. What, what do you mean leadership, networking, you do that stuff? And then there are people who know me as this expert on these topics and say, Wait, you know technology as well? And so I have to put out twice as much effort to brand myself. And even then people still might know me for one and not the other. And so for example, listeners to the show might hear, oh, Mark, and he sounds like he knows what he's talking about with professional development. Boy, we could really use a CTO, but they didn't hear that CTO part or it went by so fast. Well, I missed an opportunity there that if I was only saying CTO, 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 I could capitalize on more opportunities. But the enjoyment I get from doing some of each means I don't want to have to give it up. When I was a ballroom dancer, most ballroom dancers focus on just one style. There's four styles of dance. Most people do one, maybe two. I said, no, I'm going to do all four, because if I am traveling across country, if I'm getting on a plane, if I'm driving many hours for a weekend competition, I want to spend as much time on the floor as possible. Even if I am not as great as I could be in any one topic, I'm going to have more fun or any one discipline of ballroom. I'm going to have more fun doing more different things. So that's the trade off I've made. 
that's right for me. Yes, uh, that's really sound counsel and to really bring it back to take things in, but then check in with yourself and really pay attention to what, what is a right fit for you. So part of this is we are, what, what we're starting with is related to where I wanted to also bring back, which is where you start the book focused on career planning. And personally, I don't think people think about this enough, and I'm guessing you may think the same, but you also note that it's, it's just not taught. So do you think that's why people don't prepare or don't do career planning? And why do you think people need a career plan? Part of it is because it's not taught. And then part of it is people easily get tripped up. So let's consider the following. A lot of people say, well, career plan, you know, five years out, where am I going to be? I have no idea. How am I supposed to figure this out? And you never know what can happen. Things can go wrong. A pandemic might hit the planet. What's the odds of that happening? Right, all these things happen. I can't possibly plan and get it correct. And that's right, you can't get it correct, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to plan. Eisenhower famously said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And it is the act of planning that helps. Now let's consider, Many of your listeners, they're in office jobs. Imagine if the CEO came to you and said, we have a major project. This is going to make or break the company the next two years, critical project, and you are in charge. Would you say, okay, got it, really important two years. Here's what I'm gonna do. Not bother with a budget, not bother with a timeline, not bother with milestones. I'm gonna wing it and let's see where we wind up in two years. That's absolute insanity. We would never do that. But that's what we're doing with our careers, which are much longer than two years. Now, if you did take on this two-year project for the CEO, you're not going to map out every single day for the next two years. You're going to perhaps create quarterly milestones and have a project plan. And the first quarter, maybe two, will be pretty detailed. Here's what we're working on. Here's how we're going to do it. Then rest are perhaps a little vaguer. They're more placeholders. And then you know, whatever you put there, it's going to change. You can't possibly be right in your prediction 18 months out, but as you get closer, you're going to revise the plan based on reality, where you're ahead, where you're behind. Changes when the CEO came back nine months later and she said, oh, change of plans. Here's a new objective I'm adding into this. You're like, okay, uh, update the plan. So this is how we deal with our career plans. Don't try to get perfect. Start where you can get the nearer term a little more concrete, the longer term is going to be fuzzier, and then recognize you can and should adjust your plan as you go. Mm. Yes, and you also said like people tend to get tripped up. Can you give an example of like where people tend to get tripped up? It's where they say, I can't possibly figure out what I want in a few years. One of the things I have in the book, and it's also available for free on the resources page of my website, are a bunch of starting questions. And these are questions about what you might want in life, what you enjoy doing, the nature of your job. Some people want a very Monday to Friday, nine to five job, and five o'clock, I go home and don't have to think about it. Other people say, I want flexibility. I want come and go as I want. And I'm okay if I'm doing some work at 10 at night, as long as I don't have to be there at 9 a.m. if I feel like sleeping in. So those are different work styles. 
or cultures, that's important too. So you can start thinking through these questions. You're not going to be able to answer all of them and that's okay. But as you start to answer them, it starts to narrow down what you might want. And the process again of creating the plan, people get overwhelmed. Oh my God, I can do so many different things. I can go to so many different directions. Using these questions start to narrow it down. When I was younger, I was also a competitive chess player. And if you ever played chess, in theory, there are billions of moves, just a few turns out, right? I can move any of my pieces right now, but most of us when we play chess, you don't think about, well, I can move this pawn or I can move that pawn or I can move this other pawn. You're thinking, well, they're attacking my queen right now. So I should probably move my queen to one of four places. And that's what I'm going to focus on. You don't look at every possibility. You do what in AI is referred to as pruning. We narrow it down to, here's kind of the more focused part of it. I'm going to look in that area, not worry about every single possibility. So that's what you need to do with your life is think about, here's the likely path. Here are some variants and not worry about every possible thing you can do. And those questions will help you prune, help narrow down. I could potentially move to any city in the country, but realistically, there's only a handful of cities I'm happy to live in. So let me think about what are the industries in those cities and do I want to stay in my industry or switch to one of the other ones? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it brings to mind Barry Schwartz and Schwartz and the paradox of choice and kind of this idea that, yes, if we have too many choices, of course, we all get overwhelmed. We don't need 50 types of pasta sauce if we can <laughs> narrow down to, okay, I need one that's gluten-free or that, you know, fits my criteria, um, then, you know, perhaps we can make choices um through a limited set. So that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I'm wondering if you, you talked about this a little bit, but I wonder if there's anything else you wanted to say about it, because one of the things that I also think about with careers is that, and I think there's some debate is how far out do I look? And I, you know, the whole part of sustainable ambition is how do I manage my career over time and from decade to decade? And I too kind of think about it um, just as you said, which is like, you know, have something that, you know, that it, it, point in a direction, have a sense of where you might want to go. And also think about that more broadly, just as you were articulating, it's not just about your career, it's also about your life and how are you starting to shape and make some career decisions based on that. So when you think about like kind of thinking with that further out horizon, are there other reasons why you think that's important or advocate that be people are bringing in that lens versus just looking close in and only looking, say, one year out? Well, consider if you wanted to take a road trip, typically it begins with your destination. I want to drive from New York to San Francisco. Then I'm going to backtrack and say, now what routes can get me there? Now, I might not take the most direct route. I might want to go a little out of my way to see a friend or to see some really exciting roadside attraction. Along the way, I might get rerouted because of traffic, because of weather, but you begin by knowing where you are going. And it's okay if, as I decide to road trip from New York to San Francisco, along the way, I decide, you know what, I think I want to go to LA instead and then reroute the rest of my trip. That's totally fine. It's my road trip. Why would I be stuck going somewhere I no longer want to go? But if I don't know where I'm going, if I get in the car and say, I'm going to start driving, I wonder where I'm going to wind up. The chances I'm going to wind up somewhere where I'm happy is a lot lower. So you want to have that target in mind. And then we backtrack 
from the target, from our destination. So I always think about that long-term goal. For me, it was CTO. But of course, I knew I couldn't go right from entry-level software engineer to CTO. It's a pretty hard jump to make. So what are the intermediate steps? In order to become a CTO, I need to have certain skills, which meant not only did I have to develop them in myself, I also had to have a track record. No one's going to hire me to manage 100 people if I haven't managed at least five. So somewhere along the way, I have to manage five people. In fact, I'll probably also have to show I've managed 50 people. But again, no one will let me manage 50 if I haven't done at least 20, 20, maybe five. So what are the steps? I go for my goal and I backtrack to where are the steps along the way. And so it begins with understanding that long-term goal. The goal may be a job title. It may just be a concept. It may be, I want to work in this area. I want to do this type of work. I'm not too concerned about the particular title. It might be more responsibilities or things I want to achieve or the nature of the work I want to do. I appreciate that because, and I think that's probably, like you said, one of the places where people get tripped up is they have this assumption that it has to be really specific and that it has to, that they have to have this crystallized, you know, like you're saying, I want to be a CTO or I want to be a CEO. And you're just like, Hey, just have a general sense. And then, you know, chart your, your course along the way. And I'm curious if that's, you know, part of the thing about the book is that, you know, it's, it's broad in what it offers in terms of it's not just starting with a career plan. It goes into interviewing, talks about, as you said, the lessons that you needed to learn to be successful in that job and grow in your career over time. And I'm wondering, like some people might say, oh, this is just a book for people like coming out of college and like starting their careers. But it seems like there's a lot of application to people who might be running into career transitions and needing to adjust along the way, as you're saying. So what can people find in the book if they're in a career transition? Are there tips in here or if they're at an inflection point, say that it might be a good time to actually pick the book up again and kind of where would you point them to kind of help them guide at that stage in in perhaps their career plan? This book really applies to all ages and levels of experience. And we have gotten feedback from people in their 40s, 50s, even 60s saying, wow, I wish I had this when I was younger, but even today it is still helping me achieve the goals that I want. And I'll give you an example of that in in a moment. Certainly if you're doing a career transition, then yes, going through starting with chapter one, how to create a career plan, how to think about what you're transitioning to, and then what that path looks like. So you can map out and then execute on that transition plan. That's going to be very helpful. If you just say, I know what I want to do, but I want to get further up the ladder. Well, that's also something we can help with. I open the book by saying, there are stories of people say, I want that promotion, but I just can't get it. Someone who wants to reach the next level in her career, but she just doesn't know how, because no one teaches us how to actually execute on. So anywhere you're trying to go, unless you're saying, I like this job and I'm happy doing this day after day, this book, chapter one, can help you get there. And by the way, for solopreneurs, for entrepreneurs, they also, they at first say, well, wait, I there's no other future job for me. My job is founder or CEO. And while it's true, your job title may not change, That doesn't mean you're not growing and developing in the type of work that you're doing. The nature of your job will change. And that's where many of these other skills, the negotiating, the networking, communicating, team building, all those skills come in. 
and really help you be more successful. So I said, I'll give you an example. Let's consider negotiating. Imagine you are 25 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000. Instead of taking that job, you go and negotiate and you get just $1,000 more. We can all imagine doing that. It's not a, a tough push to get $1,000 more. If you do nothing else in your career, you just got $1,000 more for the next 40 years. One five-minute negotiation just got you $40,000 more. My God, if you think about the math there, why are you not spending time taking a negotiation class, reading a negotiation book? We're not talking about being the world's best negotiator. It's just getting a little bit better, can add tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earnings. Because of course, people are saying, wait a second, you're gonna get more than $1,000. You're not gonna stay in the same job. You can add so much more money. And while it's great to do that when you're 25 and have 40 years of earnings, if you're 45, well, you do the math, you say, I'm still going to get $20,000 more. That's still worth reading a single book and getting just a little bit better at negotiating. So developing these skills is going to give you a great ROI. And now here's the, the secret most people don't get. I use negotiating because we can do the math there. We can literally say, oh, X dollars, Y years, multiply it out. The same is true for all these other skills. Now, no one is going to say, oh, you're a slightly better leader, so here's $1,000 more. But when you are a slightly better leader than your peers, you will be given more opportunities, more seniority on projects. You will be faster to be promoted. And so no one's going to say here's $1,000 more, but these more opportunities will translate into more money and more success overall. So you get the same ROI with all of the skills in the book, with each one of them. It's just not as clear the math for each one. So all these skills can help you no matter where you are in your career. Mm, so important. And I'm, I was also wondering, Mark, you, so the book is divided into three sections. So there's career, there's leadership and management, and then there's interpersonal dynamics. And I was wondering what, you know, what partly like, why was this so needed in the world? You kind of talked about that, but more around this idea of like, what do you think people miss the most? Like within this, are there elements that you kind of see, like, this is the biggest like blind spot that people have say? The biggest blind spot is thinking, you're either natural or you're not. We know there are natural leaders. We know there are people who are naturally good communicators or some are just better at negotiating. But in fact, all of us can get better at these skills. They can all be learned. They can all be developed. If you think about sports, there are people who are naturally athletic. I was not one of them. But if you put in the time and effort and train you can become extremely good. That's how I became a ballroom champion by just drilling and practicing and getting better over time. And that's true for leadership, for communicating, for networking, for negotiating. All of these are learnable skills. So the most important thing to understand is that you can develop and excel at any of these skills. And mm, so great. Yes. Yeah, so to not just assume like, well, I'm just not good at that. So I'm just not going to try to kind of develop these, um, which, you know, really limits people. As you're saying, there's tremendous ROI to putting attention here. So um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Mark, as you talk about this in the book is that, and, it's, and I think it's relevant right now because 
you talk about this idea of job optimization. And during this time of the great resignation, I don't know if everyone takes into account the downsides of switching jobs. So Adam Grant recently shared in a post that data shows that when people leave for a new job, satisfaction and energy drop for over a year and belonging dips, work family conflict climbs. And he notes that transitions can take a toll and suggested to explore ways to improve your job before you quit. So with that as kind of preamble, I, I, again, I love that you have a section in the, in the book about job optimization. So I'm curious where you would point people to make their job better and, and to start there perhaps before they jump, assuming you agree kind of with that line of thinking. <laughs> the answer, as with most of these, is it depends so much on the circumstances. And so one of the things to look at is the issue you have with your job systemic or temporary? We all get assigned to a project for three, six months. You say, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. But you know what? Six months out of six years there, suck it up. That's part of being at a job. You're not going to love everything you do. But if you have strong connections, if you are fast tracking there, it's worth, worth doing it. Don't just say, oh, I don't want to spend six months doing something that isn't fun for me. I'm willing to look at the long-term gains rather than the short-term optimization. On the other hand, if you say, this is a toxic culture, my boss is a jerk. He is just always yelling, yelling, yelling. I don't like it. I show up every day and say, I don't want to be here. Okay, you need to change jobs. No question about it. Do you need to change companies? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you can find a different role within the company where some of your existing relationships, knowledge, that can all still benefit you and you're not losing it because every time you go to a new job, I haven't seen that data, but certainly you have to reprove yourself. You have to build those internal relationships again. You have to convince people you are competent, whereas at your existing job, they know who you are. You've got the trust already. So you have to decide whether that temporary, let's call it pain or setback is worth it. And it might be. We know with college, for example, it's worth going into debt taking that temporary pain and having to study a lot because long-term it's gonna put you on a great track. So maybe going to this job, even though it's a setback, it's gonna put you in a better place. I work in startup companies. I know when I was a CTO at a startup, I could have gotten more money elsewhere, but the belief was first, I'm not just in it for the money. There were other benefits, but then also the belief that the stock options were going to be worth much more than the temporary money I was give, giving up. Sometimes I was right. Sometimes I was wrong. I was willing to take that risk because I'm not looking for, well, who's going to pay me the most money this week? Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And if somebody is going to stay with at a company or if they're, they are looking to optimize a job, where would you point them? There's a number of ways to think about optimizing your job. First is making sure this job is taking you to where you want to go. This goes back to the career planning. It might not be paying you as much, but it's teaching you things that's setting you up. I spent a year working at Harvard Business School with two finance professors. The pay wasn't the best I could get, and I was okay with that because I literally sat three feet from a professor for a year, I was personally tutored in finance by two HBS professors. 
Most people have to pay them to learn finance. I convinced Harvard Business School to pay me to learn finance. That was well worth getting a little less money because the education I got was phenomenal. So we can do trade-offs like that. What am I optimizing for long-term? And then also recognizing how can I get the most out of this job? One thing I tell to my students when they go off to their internships, I say, look, even if it's not a great internship, if you say, yeah, this isn't fun, but you're three weeks in, you've got five weeks to go. You're certainly not going to be changing jobs unless there's something horribly, horribly wrong. Write it out. But here's one of the great things you can do. So once you're in that job, you can do something I can't do. You can walk up to anyone in the company and say, hi, I'd like to talk to you. If I try doing that, security is going to stop me at the front door. So once you're in that company, you have this great opportunity to meet and network with other people in the company and to find ways you can learn more, get engaged with side projects, as long as you do your own work and make sure you stay on top of that. There are other ways you can gain. And it's about being creative and not just saying, well, my job shows up, sits in this chair and does what I'm told. You can find other ways to gain value. I so appreciate that because I think oftentimes people just are looking for their companies to be always thinking about them, right? Or they think that they, oh, of course they're thinking about me. They're going to present opportunities to me. <laughs> they're going, and it's like, if you don't take some, you know, control for yourself and really take responsibility for your own career. And I know a lot of people talk about that, but I think it, it bears repeating because I think oftentimes people don't think they have some latitude or have this ability on their own to go and and make learning opportunities or growth opportunities happen for themselves within an organization. No one cares more about your career than you. Your manager may sincerely care and want to help, as does HR, as do your friends and family. They may be sincere. They may not be. We all have seen managers who just don't care. But even when they are sincere, you are not your manager's number one priority. Your career certainly isn't. You have to take ownership and responsibility and recognize they are hopefully there to support you at best, but you have to drive the car. You have to make sure you're moving it forward and don't just sit back and wait for other people to get you those opportunities. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. Um, one thing I wanted to come back to, Mark, because you brought it up in an earlier response, which is around culture. And this is a question I often get from people, which is that, you know, how do you really assess culture? And we know, and you alluded to this, that it's often that when people that, you know, that the culture in one's boss really impacts one's happiness. And so, like I said, people often ask, like, how do you assess a corporate culture when you're interviewing? What do I, what should I ask about during an interview? Like, do you have any tips on how people can think about that during that stage of the process before they actually join a company and select a company? Yeah. First, ignore whatever they put on the website. We're customer focused, we're innovative, whatever. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Usually it's more marketing than anything else. The culture that impacts you is the culture you work in every single day. And that is the culture of your manager and your peers. It's how you show up. There was a guy who told me the company he worked at, whoever yelled loudest won the argument. That's their culture. That was not on the corporate website, but that is very much 
their SOP, their standard operating practice. And if you didn't prepare to yell, if you didn't work well in a culture of yelling, you were not going to succeed. That unfortunately is not going to come out during an interview process. Now, what you do want to do is try to assess this. So a question I always recommend is to say to your manager, tell me about this particular group we work in. Forget the company overall, although if you're an executive, you can ask at the company level. Tell me, give me three adjectives or five adjectives or however many you want. Give me three adjectives that describe the corporate culture here. Manager's going to come back with three adjectives. And then you say, okay, can you give me an example of each that really shows how you live these values? Because anyone can pick, oh, we care about our employees. Okay, great. Prove it. Give me some examples. Show me something. If they give a one-off, oh, well, last week I told Joan she did a really good job. Okay, thank you. Could you possibly give me some more examples or show me something systemic and not a one-off about how you or the company cares about employees? So ask them to prove it. This is what they do with you, right? This is how they, they will ask you these types of questions. A lot of the questions you get asked, you can reverse them and ask them to the company. I love that. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that it's reverse behavioral interviewing. It's exactly right that you should be doing the same thing and asking them, like, give me some proof points, you know? So I love that. And asking them to really get specific about that seems really, really wise. Um, are there other questions like that that you think are, if someone's going through the interview process, it's kind of these, you know, here are my top one to three, like must have questions as you're going through to really make sure you're aligning job fit as well as culture fit. There's a whole bunch that I'm putting out in some upcoming blog posts. I'll give you one other. And this, again, this is a question I've gotten as a candidate. If I were to ask the person who was last in this role, what it was like and why she left, what would she tell me? And they'll squirm. They typically squirm with that because this is a question they they often ask you as a candidate. If I asked your last boss, how were you and why you left? And now in some cases it might be, oh, he'll have wonderful things to say about me. And unfortunately the startup ran out of money. In some cases it could be, you know, you got this new boss and you and the new boss didn't get along, just wasn't a fit. It's like, okay, well, that boss isn't going to have anything great to say about me, but I don't want to say, well, got a new boss and can't say he was a jerk, but I can't say he thinks I wasn't great. You're going to squirm a little with that. Well, you're doing the same thing to the company. And again, we all know sometimes someone just says, I don't like this job. Things changed for me and nothing's wrong with the company. It just wasn't a fit for her. Or sometimes it could be, yeah, everyone here yells and I don't like yelling. And that's what she said. But of course, this person can't say, oh, she didn't like all the yelling here. So it's the same type of, let's see if you can thread the needle. And if you know how to read between the lines, you can figure out the way they're threading the needle. Is it, okay, that was just not a one-off fit or there's something wrong here. Or in some cases, oh, she loved it, but her husband got a great job elsewhere and they decided to move to the West Coast and we need local people. And okay, that. That's how it happened. And there's no information to be gained there. Mm, I really appreciate that. Like both of these questions and tips that you're having, and we'll of course direct people to your blog. 
are really gems in helping people because this really is one of the more challenging areas to really try to assess culture fit. And we all know, I mean, in so many of the people that I work with, this is, especially as you get further along in your career, oftentimes it's kind of like, I just want to work somewhere where it's a fit, right? And so these questions are really, you know, so important. Um, So I appreciate you sharing them. As we get more senior in our career, the valuation criteria tends to change. As an individual contributor, as a junior person, you say, I'm going to show up. As long as that work project is interesting, as long as I get to work on X, and maybe 10, 20% of my job is meetings and dealing with the marketing team, but okay, I get to work on X and that's exciting. As we become more senior, as a CTO, I don't work on X. I coordinate others who work on X, Y, and Z but I spend a lot of my time interacting with other people. I spend more time in meetings, more time trying to think big picture stuff and that involves other people. And therefore the relationship to other people and how we engage with each other has a bigger impact on my job. Mm. I so appreciate that. I, I was curious, Mark, based on your experience of working with everyone from college age to you're saying you hear a lot of feedback from people further along in their career. And you're saying the book has application to that. Like what advice do you have for people managing their careers, say in their 20s versus 30s versus 40s? In your 20s, it's basically what you can trade off. For example, in your 20s, you might not be optimizing as much for money. I gave the example that I did because in your 20s, you can eat ramen noodles. You're still living with roommates. In your 40s, for example, you might not be able to take as much risk. You might say, I've got kids who are going to college. I've got mortgage. I've got make sure I'm taking a more stable job or money is now a more important component. Or perhaps in your 40s, you're saying, I have a spouse who has a very good job. And in fact, I can now go do the startup and not take a salary for a year, which I couldn't do before. So things will change over time. How they change will vary. What's important to you will vary. The one thing I've tended to see is that as people get older, they've tended to say, my tolerance for bullshit has gone down. People earlier in their career excuse behavior well, yeah, he's a jerk, but the company's doing well and I'm going to stick it out or I can deal with some yelling. As people get older, they've generally said, you know what? I've learned it's not worth it. I would rather the right fit, the right people, the right values and culture over the excitement, the high flying, whatever. I'm just not going to put up with this behavior. So that's probably the one common thread. But more generally, just recognize your values will change and that is normal and okay. Mm. Yes, I wholeheartedly believe in that. And I think that's one thing about sustainable ambition for me is just pointing a light on that and shining a light on it because people often are surprised when things start to change for them and their values start to shift. And they're like, I literally just had somebody ask me like, is this normal? Like, does this happen? I'm like, yes, it's normal. It's not uncommon as we grow, you know, things change for us and our lives change and how we value things and how we prioritize things change. So um, really think that's important guidance for people. 
Um, and as, as we start to wrap up, Mark, I wanted to shift and ask you like a little bit of a personal question in that, you know, as I said earlier, I love just how multifaceted you are and how, how you have so many different interests and you do all these fun things. Like you have an annual Halloween party, you have an annual fondue party. And I was curious what inspires these and whether or not they play a part in your own way of helping to sustain yourself with your own ambitions and what you're doing with a, a full plate of having both of these tracks being a CTO, as well as doing this work around the career toolkit. They do. Now I am an extrovert introvert, so I like to be social. I know literally thousands of people. My rule, I'm connected to thousands of people on Facebook, on LinkedIn. My rule, however, I don't connect to strangers. If it's not someone I personally know, if it's not someone I would recognize walking down the street, I'm not going to connect to that person. Although I, I will concede, having just gone to my high school reunion, I might not recognize people from 30 years ago. But generally, yes, as, as long as, hey, oh, we, we may know you. I'm not just going to say, hi, stranger. Let's just connect online. But keeping up with people is really hard. How do you keep up with a couple thousand people when there's only 300 some days a year? One of the ways I do that is by bringing people to me, by hosting events, I bring them to me. And it's a good way to catch up with people, even if they can't make the party. It's a reason I've now reached out. I've stayed top of mind. I've connected. They say, no, I'm like, oh, sorry, you couldn't make it. Hey, how are you doing? Let's catch up even by phone. So that's one of the reasons I do the events. In fact, I started doing some of these with my friend, Olivia Fox Caban, who's the author of The Charisma Myth. So she and I used to co-host these events together. We did some professional-oriented parties. We've done personal-oriented parties, and they have just been a lot of fun. Wow. I love that. And I, it's such a smart idea to do something like this. And of course, once we're past, you know, this critical stage of the pandemic, like getting back to that, but really having that as a way to come together. And by the way, the culture, the, the charisma myth is one of my favorite books. Actually, I reference it a lot. She has so many great tips and tools and her toolkit that went along with that book was amazing as well. So that's wonderful that you know her too. Um, and I'm, you know, this has been such a great conversation, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for my listeners, a lot of great tips and advice. And of course, the, the book, The Career Toolkit is, is wonderful. Um, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you could just close with this question, which is just, you know, what's a takeaway you'd love to leave our listeners with? These skills are different than most of the skills that we have developed over time. You have learned accounting or software engineering or whatever you do because someone, some experts stood at the front of the room and said, here's what you need to memorize. And that's how we learned. These skills are more akin to learning a sport. There is no three steps to memorize to be a leader. There's no formula for communication. They're subtle, they're more complex. So the best way to learn these skills is to create peer learning groups. Get together, say, twice a month with a couple people. And I recommend you can take some content. I have a download, a free download on my website, how you can do this. You can take some content. Now, yes, you can use my book and, oh, you read these 10 pages this week and then those 10 next week. If you don't want to use my book, use a different book. Use articles online, videos. Use a great podcast like this one. 
get that content, everyone in the group listens to it or reads it, and then come together and discuss it because it's in that discussion. What do you think about what she said about leadership? Oh, here was my take on, hey, I have a leadership challenge. Here's what I'm thinking of doing. What do you think? Oh, well, I had a similar issue years ago. Here's what I tried. Here's what worked, what didn't. That's how you're really going to develop these skills more than just I read it once and now I think I know what I'm doing. So create peer learning groups, use the free download, get your company to do this. If your company doesn't wanna do it, create a local meetup group, get other people from different companies together, but learn these with other people. And that's how you're going to more effectively learn and retain them. Mm, I so love that. Thank you. <laughs> it's a wonderful tip. And it, it's a way to network as well. Um, See, so it really is a, a, a double whammy there. That's so great. Well, I know people can go to the careertoolkit.com to find the book and more materials. Did I get that right? The, the careertoolkitbook.com. Um, but where else can they find you, Mark? And tell us also a, a little bit about the free app that you have. The app, which is free on Android and iPhone, you just need to open it once a month just so we know you're active. And what it's going to do is each day pop up one of the tips from the book. So as you read the book, it's going to help keep it top of mind, help reinforce it. Because I know when you read a book, you forget all three weeks later. You could also, if you're say about to go into a networking event, open it up quickly, jump to those networking tips to get that quick refresher before you walk in the room, because I'm sure you're not carrying my book with you. So now it's like you have the book in your pocket. So if you go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, you can learn more about the book and where to buy it. You can follow me on social media, all the standard channels, or get in touch with me. You can go to the app page, and that's going to then take you to app or Android to download the free app. You can follow the blog, or you can go to the resources page where you can see those questions we talked about to help you think through your career. The first download is a development guide to help you create this peer learning program, a link to a whole bunch of other books, and then also free resources online, all of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Fabulous. This is so great, Mark. So many resources and so many great tips for people to really manage a successful career and a fulfilling career over time. So thank you so much for being here today and spending time with me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.